separating your identity from your profession is just smart. In any of us, let's say, for instance, you had a horrific accident and you were disfigured and suddenly... Touching some wood right you know, here. Touching some wood, suddenly you couldn't do what you do. Mm. If what you've built your identity on was taken away, what would still be left? And if the answer to that is, oh gosh, I don't know, that's shaky ground. So for any of us, even if none of this AI stuff was coming, but even to have the thought experiment of, okay, well, if I couldn't do what I do, would I still feel valuable? You know, it's something we don't give a lot of thought to because we're also focused on this aspirational, how do I get to the next rung in the ladder? And if I get this or I make partner or whatever it is, I'm somehow worth more or better and often in comparison to others. And the problem with that is if you win, you become conceited. If you fail, you become ashamed. And either way, that's not sustainable or helpful. So how do you try and detach your identity from your work and your looks and your wealth and your, all that stuff? just sensible to do really that's author speaker and futurist michael mcqueen and this is episode 267 of the osher ginsburg podcast I'm Osher Ginsberg, and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is my show, and this is episode 267 of the show with futurist, author, and speaker, Michael McQueen. You can find him on Twitter at Michael underscore McQueen, M-C-Q-U-E-E-N. It is a... Uh, Beautiful summer's weekend in Sydney, Australia, where I'm recording this right now. It's a weekend where there's a public holiday, so there's a lot of people having a holiday, <laughs> barbecue day, whatever it is. So, yeah, if you hear the sounds of my suburb enjoying the sunshine, that's where we are. But that's what's going on. Um, if, you're, if you're new to this show, welcome to this show. Uh, what is this show? It's a podcast. It's a conversation. You get to be a part of it. It's a conversation that I have, we have curated, hopefully, to help you make today better than yesterday. Uh, that's pretty much it. Sometimes it'll be a chat with somebody that you recognize. Some it'll be with a chat with you don't recognize. But no matter what, I guarantee you're going to hear something today you need to hear. You'll hear something in this chat that you go, oh, all right, yep, yep, that is, yep, didn't think that this morning. But that's a pretty good thing that I could use today. That's it. That's all I'm here to do. If we get to do that just one time, then job well done. Uh, so thanks for being here. A massive thanks to everybody that sent me a podsy pic this week. What's a podsy? It's like a selfie, but it's a photo taken of what you're looking at right now because you're probably listening to this on a phone. Uh, and, uh, there are six people that don't. And of, that, of which four of them have sent me pictures because I can see the results. I can see who's listening on a laptop or a desktop and there's like six of them. <laughs> Uh, and four of them sent me a picture, which is really cool. So thank you very much to everybody that's sending me a picture of what they're looking at when they're listening to the show. Uh, plenty of great pictures coming through on Instagram and on the email, email at gmail.com. Wendy sent a beautiful picture of Bruce the Rooster uh, in full voice, just bringing in the morning. Um, Stano sent a picture uh, enjoying the episode with E.G. Han Shemis, and I checked it out. It looked like it was taken from the center seat in the back which I'm grateful for because do not take these photos while driving. Um, but, yeah, Stano was on a highway somewhere deep in the wide brown land, somewhere across Australia. And uh, Kaya is enjoying the show in her wonderful rooftop t 
Terrace and her workplace in Perth. Uh, looked like a lovely day to enjoy your lunch and listen to a podcast. So thanks for that, Kaya. Please do send your photos in. It's great to see where you enjoy the show, how you make the show a part of your week. Um, yeah, I listen to podcasts when I do stuff. I do listen all the time, all the time. So it's, it's great. I love it. Um, and it helps us all kind of, you know, see each other and get to know each other a little bit because, you know, reshare them occasionally. It's, it's really cool. Please do send in your photos. It's always great to see. A massive thank you to Brisbane. I love you, Brisbane. You mean the world to me. Um, the show is a sellout. The show at the Brisbane Powerhouse is a sellout. We are done. We're full to the brim. There is not a spare seat left. 500 seats, my friends. We sold out 500 seats. I couldn't be more humbled by that. Cannot wait to see you there. It is going to be a top night. At this point, it's the last time we're going to do the show live. So if you've got a ticket, good for you. If you haven't got a ticket, maybe check on the Facebook group. That Sometimes people can't go when they try to you know, help other people get to the show on the Facebook group. So... If you have a ticket and you can't make it, I'm pretty sure you'll find a buyer on the Facebook group. To check in with you, it's been a pretty good week so far. I'm back in training, which is good, back to routine, which is good, back to working out. And um, oh, you know me, in an effort to kind of improve my outcomes, I think it's important that you've got to always challenge yourself. What's that magic number? You've got to challenge yourself by 4% to get growth. Uh, it's not much. 4% isn't much. Um, but I've uh, gone and found a new coach to work out with. It's important that we find people that can teach us how to do things that we don't know how to do, to find people that we're challenged by, and you know, but we have to be willing to coach, be, be coached. We have to be willing to do what they say. And I know enough that I don't know enough, so I just shut up and listen and lift the thing. <laughs> uh, this guy coaches somebody that I know, and that person has had uh, remarkable results. So um, I'm keen to see what happens over the next few weeks before I get back to shooting full-time mostly. I'm just working on learning how to be safely lifting heavier things to stimulate my body's hormone production. Um, because, you know, dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine are really good things to get into your bloodstream. And you can do that for free by doing exercises. Um, but, you know, if there happens to be some hypertrophy along the way, I'll take it. I won't lie. Um, and as a new thing, this is kind of new for me, I deliberately chose a gym a half-hour bike ride from my house. Now, why did I do that? Because, you know, if it's just down the road, I'll always drive. Um, but if I ride to and from the gym, that's my cardio taken care of. While I do enjoy sitting in my garage and my Wahoo trainer, I do like that if I need to, I am much happier out on the road with the wind in my face and being among the other bike riders as we go to and fro. Um, it's, it's actually really good. And then it's done. Then I'm done. You know, I get an hour of podcast listening done for the day. Um, I get my cardio done for the day. And then I'm done for the day. Get about, you know, off, back, done. Within two hours, I'm, everything's sweet. It's only been a week, but I asked Audrey the other day, am I, am I easier to be around? Because that's the kind of the metric that I'm going for. Am I easier to be around? And her answer was yes. And that's all I need to know. Um, because I can't tell when I'm being a punish to others. The world just seems, I don't know, the world just seems like everything's hard. Um, but I know that I have to stay on top of my reactions to the world so that my experience in the world is an easier one for me and for those around me. And part of that means letting off that, precious, that pressure gauge like I do with my, when I cook my chickpeas in my pressure cooker um, by lifting stuff, getting on my bike, getting the exercise in, um, 
Because that's the ultimate effect that I'm after, is just I'm not such a punish to be around for myself or for others. I did get asked a question on Instagram this week that I did want to answer here. Willie was kind enough to get in touch on Instagram and asked, Hello, mate. You often talk about your anxiety and the negative emotions, though do you not also suffer from the opposite, the euphoric mania and adrenaline of excitement? If If yes, could you talk about that in your openings? It would be great to understand the other side of the coin. Well, thank you very much for your question, Willie. I really appreciate that. Um, Yes, I did experience that. I did experience euphoria. I don't know if it was mania. It might have been a few psychiatrists who said, yeah, it probably was, or yes, it was, or maybe whatever. It was up there. And, um, you know, it's been described to me as a hypermanic state. So I guess, yeah, you know. And so initially, yeah, it 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 was hard to get used to, Willie. What I used to think was happiness or joy or excitement was sometimes actually an unhealthy and unreasonable level of excitement and euphoria that felt like I'd snorted a bag of cocaine while having an orgasm at the same time as eating a perfectly chilled coconut sago pudding while riding a roller coaster through space. Pretty intense. And what this would lead me to do when I was in that state, was make decisions and choices about behaviour and interaction that weren't in alignment with who I thought I was. And also took massive amounts of alcohol to come down from. Uh, Yeah, and Willie, it was a tricky readjustment to feel what approached normal levels of happiness and joy, which was the difference between, I guess, for normal happiness, it's like, oh, it's a chilly day. Oh, the sun broke through the clouds. Oh, isn't that nice? And then the sun goes away again. Right, that's what happiness probably should feel like. For me, it was like, oh, it's a chilly day. I'm in a blast furnace. <laughs> you know? I won't lie. The first few months as I started to get healthier, I missed those euphoric moments. But I had to remind myself that they were unhealthy and ultimately unsustainable, mainly because I wouldn't be myself when I was in that state. I'd make choices and do and say things that I wouldn't do otherwise. And afterwards, I'd be like, why the, why the fuck did I do that? Why did I say that to that person? And I'd, I'd kind of then have to smother myself in sedatives to come down from those states. So, yeah, it was exciting to be on that cocaine and pudding orgasm space roller coaster. But I can't live my life, carry on a normal conversation, sleep when I'm like that. And at first, it was tough because the world then appeared kind of grey and boring. But after a while, I started to become able to, you know, appreciate it more. Now, that, that's a thing called, um, my guy tells me, it's a thing called hedonic recall. We only remember the nice things about a bad situation. So, yes, while sometimes I do miss that incredible euphoria, I just then think two or three steps beyond that to remember, oh, that's what happens after. Yeah, that's what happens next. All right. Then I don't miss it anymore because then I remember what happens after that. I'm like, ah, actually, no, that never worked out nicely, did it? No, it didn't. If it's any help, well, nowadays, I actually, I enjoy happiness. I feel happiness. The world feels more colourful than it did because, I don't know, like the bits of my brain that are responsive to stimulus are slowly becoming more subtly tuned than they were. They're becoming more delicate and more nuanced as we go along. I'm still a work in progress, really, but it's a long way from that, the grey, spongy, blue tack world that I thought I was going to have to live in. It did take time, but eh, today's it was great. I hope that answers your question. Thanks very much for asking it. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let me tell you about my guest today. Michael McQueen is a speaker, author, and futurist from Australia. The majority of his work centers around helping organizations prepare for what's to come, to look beyond the horizon at how trends in society, in politics, in technology will change the way we work. Now, this applies not only to the private sector, but also to the public sector, which I'm happy about because ideas can sometimes move way faster through the private sector than in than into public policy when enough of the community demand that or start behaving and acting in that way. Um, we discuss a lot of things. We discuss healthcare. We discuss AI. We discuss a lot of stuff. It's a really interesting conversation. Michael's sixth book, sixth book, How to Prepare for What's Next, is well worth your time. Uh, you can grab it at michaelmcqueen.net. And I certainly hope this conversation tickles a few tendrils of your curious brain so that you might, I don't know, think a little differently about what's around the corner. For more about Michael, you can find him on Twitter at Michael underscore McQueen or michaelmcqueen.net. Until then, enjoy this conversation about the future. Michael, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks. We're in a hotel room on the Sydney Harbour just off at Dawes Point because we were looking for a dog-friendly hotel because our house is being renovated. I'm normally in my kitchen, but now we're in a small hotel room having a podcast. So it's thanks for coming here spot. today. My pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. I just found out that I'd know your brother. I know. What a small world is that, hey? I love it. There was a, a brief period of time when I uh, was in between TV gigs yeah. and I toyed with the startup world mm-hmm. and I spent a bit of time heading up to Silicon Valley yep. and doing some fundraising on Sand Hill Road and yep. I got along the way to developing a, an app that... It was a watch-along app. I'm usually a technologist. Uh-huh. 
uh, you know, everyone was developing it at the time, yep. and, you know, but it, nothing was there at the time. But I spent a bit of time up and I was going up there like, every week. Cool. Uh, I met Jeff. Do you know he's moved too? Like a lot of people, Silicon Valley is scattering. People are getting fed up with the cost and the um, the busyness. So he's in Denver, and a lot of the startup crew are now heading across the Rockies. So oh, there's a change of foot in Silicon Valley going right for now. That cannabis capital, going yeah, for that. There's a lot of money in <laughs> that. Yep. Oh my god, uh-huh. the amount of money in weed over there yep. is not even funny. Uh-huh. It's extraordinary. The 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 taxation on that has mm-hmm. been written so perfectly yep. that the funding for public schools, I think they had a surplus. I think they were... Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, because they, they're doing licenses, but they're almost all snapped up now. So I think it's sort of like it's the, the gold rush for cannabis right now over in the States. Mate, it, I, I don't think it'll be long before it happens here. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think the pathway will be the same. I think it'll be medicinal first and then recreational. Yep. What's interesting about that, though, is they can regulate the strengths of things. Uh-huh. So it's not like you just kind of hit or miss when yeah. you score weed. And <laughs> like with me, you don't know what you're getting with some sort of hydroponic that hasn't had the fertilizer flushed through it and you're basically yeah. smoking straight phosphorus or whatever the <laughs> fuck they put in it. Yeah, it's very interesting times over there yeah. as far as as far as capital goes. And so, look, let's firstly, let's get some de- definitions right. You are, I'll, I'll have done the intro. You just told me just before we started rolling, you've finished your seventh book. Yeah. I've written one. <laughs> <laughs> so, having, knowing the editing process, that yeah. means you've written 28 books. Because you have to Pretty much feels it four, like it. You have to rewrite it four times. It's hard, hey? You write it once and then you write it four times. How does one qualify to be a futurist? Yeah, it's a great question. I've been in that space for lots of years, but just before it was the sexy thing, you know, before it was something that was a, a sought after label. But initially my research was all around like demographic change. So generational stuff. So I was in the early days of people talking about millennials and Gen mm. Y and all that space. And so the focus, the research broadened from being just demographic change to technological and the rest of it. And as I just followed really my interest and what was interesting clients, you know, as I'd have conversations after conferences and you'd hear what was keeping them awake at night, that's that's what led most of my research. Then all of a sudden that was the label, like in the media, when they'd, uh, and they'd give the intro and they'd sort of, in a soundbite, summarize you in a sentence, that, mm. that's what I get. So it's sort of stuck. So I guess I'm in that futurist land now and all of it to me is just trying to identify patterns before they become trends. To me, that's the goal. Because, um, right. you know, when the, once the writing's on the wall, everyone can read it. You know, but the real goal is where, where you're trying to identify what's happening before it's clear to everyone else. And then that, that's where you can really add value. So you're, you're, you have a, like a, a lifetime interest in socioeconomic policy? Yeah. Uh, how did it, how did it, what was the pathway out of high school to, yeah. to this? So I actually amazingly wanted to do this since I was eight. So I, so when I was eight years old, my parents went to a conference and I'm someone of five boys. We piled into our Tarago. Which number are you? I'm number two. Oh, me too. Uh-huh. There you go. Yeah. Something good Marde, about that. I just learned one name would be. <laughs> if we were in Bali, I would be Marde and so would you. Really? Yeah. They, they have the same names for each boys. That would get Number one is Wayan. Number two is Marde. Number three is Neumann. No, Neumann? Neumann. And, and then num- Katut's one of them Kutut's too, Katut's number it? four. And then is you start right? again with Marde. With Wayan. That is just, that's confusing. So you're two of five. <laughs> two of five. Wow. So we piled in the Tarago, went down to Melbourne to a conference and, um, babysitter fell through so all of us sort of sat at the back of this conference room listening to this speaker and i i loved it i was like i was transfixed this woman spoke for an hour three or four thousand people in the room and i was like 
that's what I want to do. What were your parents doing that took you to a conference? Because Amway like- back in the day, oh. like when you know, like in the eighties and nineties, so many of that you know, middle class crew that was just such a common thing. They did it for lots of years, had a lot of success, and it was great. It was a great environment because you grew up like listening to tapes back when cassette tapes were the deal, and you know, reading good books. Like I, I would have read, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People when I was about twelve. You know, so like you just like from that age, you just it's it's really good quality stuff. So, yeah, so we were there, and I just decided that's what I wanted to do. So I was always on the radar to get into conferences and speaking. Finished school, did a commerce degree because you know it seemed like an obvious, sensible commercial thing to do, and then finished that. Met someone who was on the speaker circuit who said, "Well, if you want to do it, you know, this is how you do it." And they said, "Find something you can be the expert in." And I was twenty-two, so like you know, can't be an expert in much when you're twenty-two. So I thought, well. I'm young, I may as well use that to my advantage. And everyone's talking about millennials and Gen Y, so why not become one of the people who's tracking that? And so it was really opportunistic. It was the way to get into doing what I do now because this was the goal. But I thought, well, I can only do what I can do. And as a young person, that can be something I can sort of corner. So that was the way I got into it. Well, when you're standing in front of well, – well, number one, I find that really interesting that the American – extraordinary American sales – I don't know what if you – Story, mm. religion's too strong a word. Methodology yep. that permeated into the Australian culture through that corporation yep. is very, very interesting. That it influenced you as a kid. Yeah. Like some, where's the headquarters? Minneapolis or Chicago? No, they're over in um, uh, Minnesota. I think. Yeah, it's, well, oh, Mich- Michigan. Sorry, yeah, but so not Northern in, America, conservative yeah, heartland. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but all that you know. Come, I don't know when the company started, but mm. that. You know, full capitalist. This is how we yeah. sell it. This is how we permeate these sales ideas yeah. through our sales force, yep. and then that instruction then travels the world wherever the brand is. Mm. That's what you get when you sign up. You also get this training, yeah. and that that training hit you as yeah. an eight-year-old. Absolutely, that's really fascinating. That possibility was opened up to you at the that's age huge. of eight. I mean, there'd be probably lots of listeners whose parents were in Amway or mm. any of them, like Tupperware or Avon. Mm. And the thing about all those companies is that you, it does rub off on the kids in a really cool way. I mean, the number of people, so Daniel Flynn, for instance, um, the founder of Thank You, I was um, catching up with him recently and his parents were in Amway too. (laughs) And he said, you know, it's hard to get around the fact that it had a huge influence on him, just the thinking. So for someone like him, I mean, I think he's still only 28. And so like what he's built and he and his team have done is extraordinary. And there's a sense in which, you know, that was the philosophy that was the grounding or the foundation for him too. So it would be a lot of people, I guess, in that situation. I know uh, of a few instances where people who have come up through Starbucks Mm -hmm. have had similar. Yeah. Just because of the way it teaches customer service and the way it shows how the whole corporation, how everything works. Their training is extraordinary. The Starbucks thing. And who is the other one? And of course, the famous example of Tony Shea, the delivering happiness, the Zappos thing, people who have ex-Zappos who've gone on to create, like using the methodology of uh, a corporation and they go, thanks very much. Mm. I'm now going to go do something with this skill that I've learned. It's a degree in itself in in many ways. So as, as someone who's got a commerce degree, you're 22 years old, you're standing up in front of thousands of people. I know a little bit about the speaker's circuit. Mm. So at that if you've early gigs, you probably wouldn't have, but it's still people are still paying yeah. money yep. for sometimes five figures for you to stand there for an hour yeah. and talk. You better have some facts and figures to back up. So you're science-based the whole time. Yeah, you've got so, to do a lot of research, don't well, you? Well, actually, so 22, the first entry in was schools. 
So critical moment for me early, early on was I'd um, done a whole stack of research for what I thought would be the first book at the time, gave it to my dad who'd been a careers advisor at a school. Um, so he's in that space, knows what it, you know, had they booked speakers all the time for, you know, student stuff. And so he said, I reckon this is a winner. I reckon this would be really good to come in and run some sessions for students. And I thought, well, that's a good place to start because... You know, I've got essentially some material that I can then take into schools, work with the young people that the book's about, get the credibility of working with the young people, then write the book in a couple mm. of years after I've done you know, a whole lot of this groundwork that gives me credibility. And the interesting thing is, so it was only like honestly five, six days later, he passed away. Whoa. Like it was just one of these crazy 51 heart attack. I'd done like it was just and and all I had so the thing was he'd read this book and he'd sent an introduction by email to the woman who headed up the Careers Advisors Association so all I had like you know dust settled post-funeral what the heck you know what are we going to do now and all the sort of stuff that comes with that but I had this email sitting in my inbox from him like my last email from him was this CC me with this woman Lynn who ran the Careers Advisors Association so there was that sense in which he'd said, I reckon you should do this. There's a, there's a market, there's an opportunity. And I had the introduction, the introduction there. I thought, well, you know, whatever, I might as well give it a shot. And um, she was right out of sympathy, perhaps, you know, you know, happy to meet up, happy to help, made a few connections and I was away. So that's where I started was in schools. And that was rough because the only schools that had funding to book people like me to come in and run programs were the at-risk, really rough schools. So... I'd be like day after day in like really like you know, third and fourth generation unemployed, really rough schools. And that was my grounding for a whole stack of years. So that was good because the fees were low. So it was, you know, not too much pressure. But I mean, that was relatively high for me at the time. I thought they were, you know, like crazy stuff. But um, it did mean that I had a good, good chance, like three years, three and a half years to cut my teeth with really rough disengaged students like you know you get there and the the year advisor would say okay this guy's michael he's going to motivate you you know shut up you know and then he sort of push you out in front of the group mm. and that's it so i did that for three and a half years hated it hated it so much because no one wanted to be there students didn't want to be there like but you got rugged good like, yeah really good what skills do because i talk about this a bit in, yeah. in my uh, it's my career so i talk about it but yeah you've got to be prepared to just eat shit uh -huh. for a couple of years. Yep. You, the, the idea that one day you start a company or a blog or whatever and the next day people are offering you $10,000 <laughs> yes. to hold a photo, hold yeah. something in a photo. Yeah. No, yep. there's years yep. where it sucks mm -hmm. and you have to get up every day and go, fuck, this is going to hurt, but I'm going to have to do it yep. again. Yep. What did you learn through that? Well, I learned just that, the, you know, the whole idea. And I remember learning it years ago and it, it rang true at that time. Like, Well, two things that stood out, like if it was easy, everyone would do it. And like, there's that apprenticeship of just going through the stuff that's not fun. And there were moments where I really, like, I hated it and really wanted to quit because I was never a young, a youthy young person. Like, even when I was at high school, I'm like, I just wanted to get on with life. I'm mm. like, I'd see my mates just doing some, done, dumb stuff and be like, you know, I just want to just grow up a bit. Like, I was never a typical 15-year-old. So then I'm speaking to 15-year-olds, trying to be relevant to them, thinking, I just, you know, it's a, it's a hard fit. Like, it's not like I was a, a youth worker type person and this was great, you know, fun. So... It was tough, but every day it was that sort of like, you know, just plug away and persist. So that was the first thing was if it was easy, everyone would do it. So that's like the apprenticeship. But the second thing that I think I really learned was that idea of, you know, public victories are always preceded by private ones, like, and like thousands of them. And so I've like the last few years, like I've won some crazy awards and it's an amazing stage I'm at. I mean, much like you, it's that same thing. You look back and go for the first few years, like you, you feel like I've never worked this hard for so little. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I don't feel like I've ever worked this little for so much. Like, and you pass that tipping point. And I've been in that space for like six or seven years. And it's just like, life is, this is the dream. And when people ask, well, 
how do I do it? It's just like, well, there's no real shortcut. It's just the private victories before you get the accolades and everyone sings your praises, all the nice stuff, but it's the private stuff that no one sees that's in obscurity. And I guess that'd be the encouragement for people listening who are in their own field, wherever they're at. Like, there's no one's there cheering you on in the private victories, but that's, that's where you earn the right, like to stand on the podium. So that does get us to what I'd like to talk to you mm. about. Because you and I have just described a pathway to, if not, I wouldn't use the word success, but viability in the job market as we know it. Yep. All right. There's a period of apprenticeship and then there's a period of Mm semi-mastery and then years later there's a period of mastery. This can take 10 years to get to that point. But that's the job market as we know it now Mm -hmm. in 2018. I'm pretty sure that less than five years from now, it won't look like anything like that. Yep. How, how are we to learn, particularly as things change, as jobs disappear and new jobs arrive, how are we to, where's those years of apprenticeship going to come from? How are we going to yeah. keep up when suddenly, in, I don't know, let's make a job up. Uh, shit, where are we? We're sitting by the harbour. I don't know. Let's just, I don't know, let's say there's a fleet of autonomous scooters that need maintenance yep they never existed mm-hmm. but now they do yep how do we reskill and become masters yep very quickly yeah because in five years the job market won't look the same again yeah <laughs> well, so take take your path and i mean my path as well if, if suddenly tomorrow no one wanted to book speakers or consultants in, in my situation I'm pretty confident the stuff I've learned, and it's not even the skills, because you can learn skills relatively quickly, but it's often, it's the character stuff that takes a while to build. It's the building of contacts. Like if I had to start from scratch now, like if I moved to a brand new market where no one knew me, the learning curve would be so much shorter Mm. just because of the years I've done just building what I've built here. So there's that sense in which all those skills aren't wasted. So if you had to go and retrain to do something completely different. I reckon the learning curve would be pretty fast because of the hard yards you've done to build what you've done here. Those skills would carry across. Yes. And so I think there's that sense in which if you if you do the hard work in one area, it'll carry across a whole lot of other areas as times change and then it'll need to. Like we'll, yeah. we'll find ourselves in 15 years doing stuff that you think, I mean, podcasting, this wasn't a thing 12 years ago. Like, and yet this is something now you've got the technology and the know-how and the skills and all that sort of stuff, but that's something you've just bolted on after you've done a lot of the other hard work to develop the skills and the character. So true. I think there's those skills and character are, are going to carry across. The thing that concerns me is that, and the, the, so the book I finished last week, which will come out next year, early next year is for educators. So I've sort of gone full circle, gone back to that education space because mm. what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from corporate clients is they're getting young people come into the workplace often very ill-equipped like just for the real world. And also, we're, we're, I mean, it's not the newest revelation in the world, but schools are just not fit for what's coming. They're just not. Like so let's, we're, yeah. let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that because we are, we are living in a society that has a, a basically a scholastic model based on, I think they were Prussian military education tactics of six periods a day. Yep. And that was designed to provide workers yep. for industrial... The machine. The machine from the 1850s. <laughs> yep. All right. That was the model, uh-huh. which we've pretty much left unchanged for 150, yep. 168 years. Yep. Yeah. It missed me and that was 27 years ago. Yep. 
So what could a school look like to prepare a kid? Yep. And what do you think is going to happen? Well, so if you look at the functional stuff, there's lots of things that, and this is the beauty of the role. I mean, I get a chance to look at like just good stuff around the world, like just get a sense of mm. bird's eye view, what's happening. So some of the really clever things, for instance, is a term being used more and more, which is flipping the classroom. And so the flipped classroom, the idea is you do the bulk of your learning outside of the classroom and your class time is spent in things you can't do on your own, watching clips online, for instance, or reading books. So it's discussion, debates, learning, critical thought, teasing stuff out. So the classroom, the purpose isn't then about content delivery because the content is ubiquitous. It's out there. So the whole idea that the classroom was a place you got content, that used to be, a, that was necessary 20 or 30 years ago. It's content meaning the only place you can learn uh -huh. about how sine, cosine and tangents yep. work is from this particular teacher on this particular That's time right. at 105 on a Thursday. Yep after lunch and that used to be true i mean unless you you know digested a thick dusty textbook but mm. i mean the, that fact is now if you look at the khan academy for instance all this stuff that's online for free amazing quality learning so if that's there what's the point of the classroom then the classroom is about building those skills you can't learn by just observing content online so the flip classroom some of the functional stuff i think that's going to be important but I think it's more than just changing the structure of schools and the way classrooms function. The big thing we need is a bit of a, like a paradigm shift in the attitude of a lot of teachers, for instance, around what, what constitutes a win. Um, there's this great quote I read in the um, research for this new book from a, an, a teacher in Arkansas, and she said, um, we don't need to teach students to name the planets, but we need to teach students how to find new planets. You know, and we need to th teach them to think in a different way rather than just having to know the content so they can regurgitate it to, to get the result. Because the way we measure whether it's a win or not historically is about can have you remembered it, can you regurgitate it in a timely way. And so I think that's going to be that shift. But more than that, I think the big shift is going to be something that's going to mean we have to address what we've done for about 30 years, which is protect young people from dysphoria. And so dysphoria as a word, it's the opposite of euphoria. So it's anything that smacks of disappointment, frustration, boredom. Like these are things that in schools we've worked really hard to er eradicate. And yet now we're realizing with the data and the research that actually it's not working. So for instance, removing anything that smacks of disappointment or frustration in an effort to make a learning environment that builds confidence actually does the opposite. So look, for instance, at how you know, every runner in the race gets a ribbon. Or um, like, for instance, in some schools, I remember hearing a teacher say that they don't use the word fail anymore because they feel failure is too harsh for self-esteem. So they call it deferred success. You know, this whole idea of how do we rebadge stuff to avoid anything that smacks of negativity. And yet we go back to the point about how do you build mastery and character and the stuff that will set you up for the future. It's allowing, allowing the realities of life in minute doses at an early stage, that's when resilience is formed. And yet, I mean, it's just, it's crazy that we've spent decades now and really from 1979 onwards, that was a pivotal year. That was the international year of the child. That's when we really started ramping up this focus on self-esteem and removing dysphoria. And I think that's the stuff we're going to have to address in schools. If we're going to create students that are ready for what's coming, which is going to be a bit messy, like tough, a lot of change that is going to be challenging to navigate and you know i think some of the stuff we've done not just in terms of way we do classrooms and lessons but it's actually the way with the environment we create whether it builds resilience or not that's going to be the more important stuff tell me about the let's get some let's get dysphoric for a moment yep. and then you can make us feel good again <laughs> when you say messy what do you mean by messy 
Well, so for instance, I mean, the data about how many jobs will disappear is pretty compelling. And we've heard the headline stats like 47% of professions could be automated within 15 years. That's Oxford's headline stat. McKinsey's argued, they suggested it'll be less than that, um, that we'll see a lot more jobs augmented. So there'll be elements of roles that'll be taken over by robots and AI, but you know, not the aggregate number of jobs disappear, as Oxford have said. But even McKinsey's at the outset have said up to 375 million jobs between now and 2030 will disappear. So Worldwide? Worldwide. So that's still massive. I mean, even if that, that's on the more conservative side. So from a messy perspective, the jobs that would disappear will be a whole lot of jobs that in the past we thought were fairly safe, jobs that required you to use your brain. For instance, the legal profession, um, journalism, accountancy. You know, in the past, the jobs that were most vulnerable to being automated were the blue-collar stuff, working on a production line or a manufacturing. I mean, that's been going on for decades or centuries, but now we're seeing some of the white-collar jobs threatened in really significant ways. In the financial services sector, it's huge. I mean, look at the fintech sector in Australia, and I mean, it's it's... Every year, it's taking more and more of what used to be traditional roles for banks and financial service providers. So we're seeing this start to play out and it's just going to ramp up. And so I think the messy stuff is jobs that kids are looking at thinking that'll be safe. That's a good job. My parents did it or they, you know, my teachers say it'll be great. But the notion is, are we encouraging students to head toward things that just may not exist or building skills that may not be relevant um, in the years ahead? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know what like a small, say a small invention, I say it probably exists, but I have this iPhone X here, but let's say the iPhone X1 mm-hmm. comes with a, uh, a biometric sensor on the back yep. that I can just touch my finger to and it can measure not only my body temperature, but also let's just say a top line, you know, really simple analysis of what something is going on in, in like one of those pinprick things yes, that, the, yep. that a diabetic uses. The new Apple watches, I think, do right. a lot of this. Yeah. Let's just say that happens. Yep. All right. What happens to the kid that's spent the last 12 years becoming a doctor mm. when I, I am, I don't know how many percentage, but it's got to be high of those six-minute GP consults, you're in and out the door with a yeah. prescription. Yep. Like how quickly can I go, I feel shit today. His AI is looking at me. It's looking at my irises. It's looking through the camera at my eye. It's seeing what my body temperature is. It's noticing that I'm kind of pale. Yep. You know, my symptoms, do I feel this? Yes, yes, yes. Do I look like this? Yes, yes, yes. Um, have I been exposed to this in the last five years, five days? Yes, yes, yes. You've got a, a, yeah. some sort of bacterial infection. Here's the script. Yep. We'll send it to the thing. It'll get delivered by an Uber. Yeah. Who needs a doctor? Yeah. And this is the thing. So who needs a doctor when you've got stuff that doesn't get easily diagnosed like that? So for instance, you'd want to be getting into medicine that requires intuition, judgment, gut feel, like the stuff that when you interact with a human, it's only a human that can pick that up. For instance, you talk about issues with mental health. I mean, that requires a level of nuance and understanding and empathy. I mean, empathy is a big thing. And so the question for all of us, I think, is what are the, what are the things you can be dialing up in terms of your skill set and your career that aren't easily automated. And it's not gonna be necessarily creativity or smarts. Creativity will be helpful, but again, technology is getting pretty creative as well. Some of the algorithms for graphic design and furniture design, even music composition. I mean, some of it's ugly as all get out, but I mean, it just gives you a sense that computers are getting good at creating as well, but they're still not good at empathizing or using intuition or judgment or empathy because they haven't got a soul. 
then there's that sense of the stuff that makes us uniquely human. So you, the question will be, how do you get into a space, a profession, using skills that aren't easily replicated? It's going to be the very uniquely human stuff. And so in that case, you'd be wanting to get into some area of medicine that really requires a living, breathing human to sit across and not just listen to what you're saying, but what you mean. I mean, that, and that, that will be the real skill. So, for instance, look at some of the safest professions. Being a hairdresser, very safe. Not just because of the skills, it's not just cut and color, it's the relationship stuff, it's the experience that hairdressers create. Now, the Japanese have invented a robot in the last 12 months to be a hairdressing robot, but I can't imagine it taking off anytime soon because for most people who get haircuts, it's the experience they go for. So that'll be the challenge for any profession is how do you dial up the really human stuff? Can the school system push that stuff on kids though? Can the school system work on empathy? Can the school system, is that the place where it comes into the education? It'd be great if they could, if they would. Problem is where it's, it'd, be, it'd be a significant structural shift. So because that stuff is not easy to measure and we're obsessed with measuring, we're obsessed with standardized tests and all that stuff. But even you look at the whole discussion about STEM, you know, we want to focus on science, technology, engineering, mathematics, all these. They, they, we're so focused on the subjects that are actually the hard, some of the hard skills that will be replicated. And yeah, some schools or some systems of education add an A in and say STEAM, you know, let's add the arts in there as an mm. important thing. But that's sort of tokenistic often. But in actual fact, some of those things, those softer skills, that's going to be the most necessary stuff. So look at empathy, for instance. So there was a study done, when was it, four years ago by the University of Michigan. And they found that the levels of empathy in 18-year-olds were 40% less than they were 20 years ago. In 40%? The same age that is terrifying. It's massive. And when they looked at why, the most obvious explanation didn't account for all of it, but a big part of it was you've got a generation who've done so much of their formative communicating through a digital filter, like text messages, social media. And that, you don't learn empathy that way because empathy requires you know, observing body language, tone of voice, all the nuances, the gut feel stuff. You don't get that on technology. And so you think, for instance, the impact of that on professions like nursing, for instance, you can be a great nurse. Or you can be a good nurse, like a good nurse, well-trained, know your stuff, but to go from being a good nurse to a really great one requires empathy, like walking into a ward, getting a gut feel for what's happening for that patient. That's where real mastery in that profession lies. And working with like nursing groups you know, all around the country, in particular the hospital sector, they'll talk about the fact that young nurses, very skilled, really confident, sometimes too confident, a bit almost cocky, but these millennial nurses coming in but who lack some of those fine empathy skills. Same thing happening in the hairdressing world. We talked about them before. You know, hairdressers who are great at the cut and the colour, but can't hold down a conversation with small talk to save their lives because they've never had to do it. Um, so some of those skills would be good to see a whole lot more of that in schools. Now, how you teach empathy and intuition, I actually don't know. What about if you know, folks listening want to kind of put a bit of that towards, you know, into, into their kids' lives? Mm. What kind of things would you recommend? Well, it's not rocket science. It's the stuff that we used to do. Like we would just talk. Yeah. And tease out ideas and ask questions, probing questions when you're discussing world issues or what's happening in the day. Yeah. And you go, well, how'd that make you feel? And I think one of the things I'm mindful of, so we've got a two and a half year old. And so even at that stage of life, I'm thinking, how do we make sure we don't fall into the trap of being the parents on our phones all the time? That's tough. Because I'm, I, I want to be I want to be engaged. Like I want to be present. And the last thing I want is for him to experience that thing that you often see with young kids where they get envious of the phone because the phone's what gets the parents' attention. I mean, what a sad indictment. And yet it's so easy to fall into that trap. I was at dinner. I've been at dinner twice in the last three weeks, let's say. And with, you know, sitting at the table next to us, there's, 
you know, there's mum and dad and mm. there's two kids, headphones, iPads. Yeah. All right. And <laughs> yeah. then yeah. I was there, I was blissfully, I was with my cousin the other day and her two daughters, one's 12, one's 10, no devices on the table. Yeah. And the kids were super happy to just sit. Yep. And be there. Yep. And I'm looking at that's got to be a heap of work to get them to that point. Yeah. But these kids sat there with three grown-ups at the table just sitting, yep. just sitting. Yeah. And not wanting to go out and run around and move around, just to be there. Yeah. Yep. Far, far out. That is a that is a superpower yeah. amongst the, their peers. Yeah. And the thing is too, so um, particularly working with educators because a lot of them are parents just by nature of the profession, you know, talking about this and teasing it out for the educators and – and they'd say, well, you know, but it's just sometimes it's just so easy to have, you know, the iPad there. It's like the colouring in book of old. And, you know, I sort of understand that point to an extent. But that whole question I'll challenge them with is just because it's convenient doesn't mean it's constructive. Like it is convenient. Like, and I get it as a parent of a toddler, there are moments. So we'll use the iPad at dinner as a last resort. Like if we're there and it's just like meltdown time, I'm like, okay, cool. This is the, you know, the last thing that in, in the arsenal to pull out. But it's not our first port of call just because you try not to. And the other thing to, I guess, bear in mind is we're probably expecting stuff of kids that's unfair now too. I mean, when we were young, growing up, like our parents didn't take us to restaurants much, partly because people didn't. I mean, you just didn't go out to dinner much. I mean, but we'd go out for – you'd go to a park and you'd have a picnic and the kids would run around. I mean, it was, you were in places that were appropriate for kids. This idea of dragging kids to cafes and restaurants – constantly it's actually no and i wonder we get out ipads and the rest because it's an environment that like four-year-olds do not sit at tables quietly for an hour that's just it's never happened particularly boys i mean so it's funny that we have this mentality like the whole baby chino craze which i even find myself i feel pretentious when i'm like oh man order a baby chino i think oh, gosh what a different world our kids are growing up and i'm like i didn't I mean, the other day he asked for a croissant. I'm like, oh, no, we're raising one of those kids. He wants a croissant and a baby Chino. But it's just like that's his frame of reference now. So Wait, If he was in Paris, he'd have a croissant for breakfast. True. Give yourself a break. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. That's totally fine. As a futurist, I'm, I'm guessing the, the model is here is what the curve has looked like up until today. If I was to explore you know, one or two variables, here's where it could end up, and that's what I'm going to talk about. That's pretty much what you're yeah. doing? Yeah. Not as much. You'd be no? surprised. Partly because, I mean, the term inflection points thrown around a fair bit and the, you know, the definition of an inflection point is where you can't really judge what's coming next based on what's been. Mm -hmm. And that's in so many industries, that's where we're at. And so just taking the trajectory of the past and thinking, hey, what's that going to look like in a few years' time can, can actually be pretty dangerous because it means you're operating with an assumption that the way things have, have been – will sort of be the way it'll be in the future, but just in a slightly different form, that evolutionary change. Whereas mm. what we're seeing in many industries is like fundamental revolutionary shift. So, I mean, for instance, um, I just thinking the last couple of days, so I was over in the States the last few days and the event I had just before I flew back in South Carolina was for the energy sector. So all these energy providers, big utilities companies, sort of fossil fuels, some in renewables, but most of them still in fossil fuel land. And challenging them with the whole notion of what's coming next. And they, they started talking about, okay, well, the move to wind, for instance, wind power, offshore wind farms, because we've done the solar thing, but that's the next step. That's the evolutionary next step. And I said, well, like, for instance, what about? And I threw out just a few things that I'm seeing in that sector from working in different pockets around the world. For instance, some of the transparent um, PV panels. 
So these are like the ones we have on our roofs. Photovoltaic panels. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Good Solid. job. Yes. I had to memorize some language for this conference because I, 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 didn't, I didn't know all the jargon. But anyway, so I had to pretend that I did. Um, so but these transparent panels essentially mean, and we're getting close to this being a reality, every window pane in a building within the next 10 years could be a solar panel. So you look at a skyscraper, you've suddenly got a huge surface area that we've never had to create power. And for a lot of these guys, that wasn't on their radar. Another one that I thought was even more awesome um, was nuclear fusion. Have you seen Fuck, that? man. If we can get nuclear fusion, oh, the world will change tomorrow. Tomorrow. So the thing is, so have you seen the thing they're building in the south of France right now? Oh, please tell so me. So Google it. So it's um, ITER, I-T-E-R. This project, $20 billion, has been put in by 35 countries. Australia put in a little bit. We're not a big contributor. But 30. I mean, there's get 35 countries to join on anything so yeah. you've got like you've got the turkeys the russias the china but the us everyone pinching in to build a nuclear fusion um reactor in the south of france it's halfway done and it's not it's still experience it, it's still at that experiment stage but there's every chance the next 15 years that will be that'll be the game changer for power for, for, for folks who there's a difference between nuclear fusion and nuclear <laughs> yes. fission we currently yep. use nuclear fission yes. and let's be, let's be honest we use shitty old 80-year-old technology yep. in our nuclear reactors. There are many, many generations of nuclear reactors that haven't developed since, but for some fucking reason, yep. they're not being deployed. There yep. are reactors that if they melt down, they freeze yep. if they stop working, but they just aren't being deployed. And that sucks, but uh, nuclear fusion, basically, we're drinking, we're in a hotel, where there's, there's enough energy in this cup of water, basically, water, wow. particular kind of water, that could power a city of 150,000 people for so a day. So you know more about this than I do. That's amazing. Yeah. It's That's a particular stuff. kind of water that does it. It has a particular element so in it. So it's your scientific bent. How do you I'm know about this stuff? I'm nerdy for shit. <laughs> All right. I have a job where I count right. roses, so I never yeah. have to – I'm always in base 10. I never have to go above 23 or 24. Yep. That's my job. But I've, I've always been curious. Both my parents yeah, are doctors, right. were doctors. Uh, Mum's passed away and, and dad was a rheumatologist, uh -huh. one of the smart ones, as uh -huh. you mentioned. Very, that's very cluey. Mm -hmm. hmm, you've got a rash, but it hurts <laughs> in your knee. Problems in your shoulder. Yep. You know, you yep. Know, and, and boom, that's it. Yep. He was very clever. But yeah, I've always been, I was always raised to be curious mm. and I've always been curious, sometimes to the to extraordinary annoyance of my wife. Yeah. But yeah, I've always been curious and nuclear fusion is one of the things that I'm very, very curious about. I'm very interested in nuclear power because I feel that if we wait for something that isn't coal, mm -hmm. we are 100% fucked. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. If we wait, for wind and solar to be as easily deployable and as energy dense yep. as coal, we are 120% fucked. Yep. We, as a society, I believe this, and people you write to me, I don't care. We have, we got to make that. We got to go. Mm. And But there are other options. There is not the old nuclear reactor yeah. that we know and love was developed to be used in submarines. Is that right? That was the okay, original that is the, deployment. It was, it was yeah, America yeah. and USSR uh -huh. were racing to get and what was the nuclear reactor what happens if it melted down figures of shit yep. there's a squillion metric tons of water around yep. it yep. we'll lose 150 sailors but if it melts down it ends up at the bottom of the ocean no mm. nothing's a problem the Americans and Russians were in such a hurry to, to get nuclear power cities they basically took this exact reactor design and put it on land alright wow. and that's why you have these massive water tanks and these huge amounts of water that's involved in a, in a, in a terrestrial nuclear reactor as the cooling system because it was designed for submarines. 
then the right. Japanese put them on a fault line because that'll always work out well. Well, the, Amer- the Americans did too, mate. Oh my goodness, have you ever? <laughs> Where are these? Have you ever driven down to San Diego? There's this, there's yeah, a, yeah, yeah that, those two big boobs that sit on the side of the road. That's a nuclear reactor. Is it really? Yeah, on there the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> in an earthquake yeah, zone. Great idea. Yeah, not smart. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's been significant improvements in nuclear nuclear power. Yeah, right. But because of the, the issue that you can weaponize the fuel, there's an unbelievable controls around. Mm. Something like 85 reactors are being scheduled to be built in China. Wow. A- T five. Now, wow. whether That's they're old style or not, mm. how are we as an economy going to compete? Nuclear power is very, very cheap. Mm. How are we as an economy going to compete? If we don't, that, 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 that's the yep. thing. You know, we, there's the, the environmental case for ditching coal, which yep. is pretty compelling. <laughs> yes. And then there's the economic case. Yeah. All right, and how are we as a country going to compete against other nations, particularly if they deploy these these newer ones, which are li- liquid salt? I think they're kind of mm-hmm. liquid, and they're, and they if they like I said, they're, they're, if they break, they freeze. Yeah, right. They're fourth generation nuclear power, and it runs on it runs on spent nuclear fuel. That's the other thing. It runs on f- this that's stuff amazing. that's waste from the original reactors. All right. So how are we as an economy, as an Australian economy, mm. going to compete against the country? economically, that has access to pretty much free power, pretty much free electricity. And particularly when how much we've made from selling the coal to power the old school. Exactly. Yeah. And what happens Once when they like, we don't need you anymore, we've got these we're reactors, we're fine. We, <laughs> yeah, just wow. don't, we just don't have the time. Yeah. And that's, what do you think? This is, I want to ask you this. What economic factors, because I had um, the head of design of Ikea on this show. Oh, wow. That'd Global design. One billion customers. They make four billion widgets a year. Wow. Four billion, all right? <laughs> committing to go fully circular manufacturing by 2030. Wow. All right? When a company like that goes, we're going to do this because it's economically the right thing to do, but it's also the right thing to do. Yeah. All right? You can't compete against them unless you follow. Yeah. So what do you think, what economic things are going to shift in industry that we will see that governments have yet not have the spine to yeah, do? What kind of things question. are you thinking about? Well, so I think one of the interesting ones that I look at a lot in my research is the whole transportation and mobility thing. I mean, driverless cars, and that's just the beginning, driverless trucks, and I mean, then you look at drone technology for transportation. We've got an economy that's still pretty much based around the consumption of fuel, for instance, and the ownership of vehicles. And we'll probably see a whole lot of these fundamentals change like, really quickly. And if you, if you just take out driverless cars, if you put, for instance, just electric vehicles into the mix, so take out internal combustion engines and excises on fuel and the rest of it, we've got an economy that's still geared around that stuff. And I mean, working with the regulators, they're, they're sort of talking about, okay, maybe it's a, a use-based tax. So the more tri- time you travel on a road, the more you'll pay rather than paying for fuel. But it's going to be – that'll be a very messy transition uh, because – yeah, we'll probably see within 30 years only a car disappear as a notion, maybe even shorter than that. Because, um, for instance, if you've got a, drive, a fleet of driverless cars, Uber style, you can hail on your phone, why would you own a car? And so we'll go to that. We'll probably go to that reality within 20 to 30 years. So for automakers, they know this. So all of them, and I work with them as clients, they're all racing to pair up with ride-sharing services. Um, they know it's where it's heading. But we've still got governments that I think have, have no clue. No, no, no clue that something like a subscription model. Mm. So you can say if you just want the, I don't know, let's use Toyota as an example. Yep. If you want the Toyota Echo, yep. you can guarantee within five minutes of you clicking on this thing, yep. a Toyota Echo style car yep. will arrive, a little hatchback will arrive for you and maybe if it's just you yep. and your things 
and take you from where you want to go to yep. where you want to go. And you get so many thousand kilometers a year and that's it. Yep. If you want to get then get the upgrade and upgrade, upgrade, and then you're eventually you're in the Land Cruiser. Yep. You know? So Uber, I think it's Volvo have launched and GM have launched one of these in the last 12 months. Um, they've got the first subscription program. So a book by Cadillac, I think, is the first one they started. And then Volvo followed suit um, pretty shortly afterwards. So that's the sort of that's where we're heading. In so you just subscribe to using subscribe. a car. You don't own the car. Correct. You pay basically like Netflix for a vehicle. So you you pay an amount per month. I think the, the book by Cadillac one is the most robust program. Maybe Volvo's is a little, little behind them in terms of how developed it is. Only New York and Los Angeles run it yet. But the idea is you pay a certain amount per month whenever you want a car. And you can choose the type of car. Let's say, you know, during the week you're just traveling around town, you want a small vehicle, you just book a small car. On the weekend, you may be taking the kids to soccer, so you want a bigger SUV, you know, on your anniversary once a year, you want a convertible to something a bit fun and fancy. So you you book based on whatever you want for the occasion, but you pay a fixed amount and you don't pay insurance, you don't pay for fuel and the rest of it, you just have that subscription, like a streaming service for cars. Mm. So that's even in this stage where driverless vehicles are still level three maximum, level four is at least four years away, level five is about a decade away, level five is where you get in and go to sleep and in fact, going to sleep as a, as a notion, Volvo released imagery and um, if listeners Google it, you'll find it, um, of a driverless car with sleeping capability in it and the, the photo is amazing, it's basically like a business class pod on a flight on wheels. And Volvo have started working this as a concept car already. So that's level five automation. That's where we're heading in about a decade. But the reality is even before we get to there, subscription services will change the whole economics of mobility. And then you throw in drones. I mean, Uber want to trial this, these drone technologies in Sydney and Melbourne. It's only four cities worldwide they want to trial them in, Sydney, Melbourne, Los Angeles, and Dallas. And they want to start the trials in 2020. Passenger drones. Uh-huh. I want to have them started in 2020 and have them launched by 2023. Initially, they'll be the cost of an Uber Black Fare. But once the program's properly up and running, it'll be the cost of an Uber X Fare. So just, I mean, the, the example they gave when they did the launch event was, say you're traveling from like North Sydney, Crow's Nest, somewhere around there to the airport in Sydney. So at the moment, depending on the time of day, that can be a 45-minute drive. That will take you about two and a half, three minutes. So, I mean, just the, the, the realities of that, the way that'll reshape cities. For instance, I mean, thinking in here in Sydney, you could live in Dural, way out Northwest and still commute into the city in an Uber drone in maybe seven or eight minutes. So the whole, the, the way our cities were hanging together will change enormously. And I mean, maybe they're ambitious. I think they probably are ambitious. I mean, talking to friends who are in air traffic control, they're like, oh yeah, have fun with that. Like in terms of just the practicalities of airspace and something. It's also pretty noisy. Yeah. That's the noisy, other thing. Noisy, the practicalities, it's going to be- Can't get around the physics of it. It's noisy. Yeah, it will be, it'll be messy to implement. But if there's one thing we've learned from Uber as a culture, as a company, they make stuff happen and then figure out the best way to make it and make it palatable to people and regulators after it's happening. Well, you, t- you talked about trucks before. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if passenger drones do or don't happen, like as far as you and yep. I are getting around. But as far as freight goes, mm. mate, in places where it's too expensive to deploy 100 kilometres of road yeah. yep. in parts of the world yep. where, you know, wh- why build a, a highway at a couple of million dollars a kilometre yep. when you can just put a drone port at where the ships roll in and then a drone port at the city yep. and there's yep. there. <laughs> all day, well, so all night. Take it a step further than that. So um, about 14 months ago, Amazon filed a patent application for what they're calling airborne fulfilment centres. These are awesome. So Walmart filed a page application two months later for a slightly a varied um, idea of the same thing. Are you thing. saying things in blimps? Yes. Get out. 
check it out. Just Google it. It's pretty cool. So they they launched the patient application. They're, they're testing it. Both Walmart and Amazon are in a race to make these things a reality. And I was doing some work with um, the distribution guys for Pepsi, and they were talking about what would dist- what would disrupt their businesses, all the trucks driving boxes of you know chips and drinks around the place. And I shared this with them, and, and that you could just see like the the blood drain from their face. It's like this wasn't even on their radar as a thing. But this is why, again, going back to that point of just looking at the way stuff's been and then trying to extrapolate where it's going to go is yeah. dangerous because this is something that's an absolute game changer. So they'll fly around the globe at 45,000 feet. You will order on your phone an item using the Amazon Prime Air app. It'll be dispatched within a minute, delivered to you by drone probably within four or five minutes. And actually, what's interesting, the people who are most nervous about this, I shared this at a conference in Fiji a few months ago for the um, the International Customs Federation. Imagine how much fun they are. Um, so you know, all these customs officials from around the world, and they just like almost lost it. Like, they, how do you control borders, particularly say in Europe where you've got you know, a mess of borders? Like when you've got warehouses floating around the globe at at forty five thousand feet. So all of these things. I mean, they change some of the fundamentals and regulators will be scrambling to catch up, much less the impact on businesses. What do you think, as we get more and more global economically, yeah. we are tethered together and essentially, you know, what is a nation? A nation is just a story that we've all agreed that this particular piece of cloth with these, <laughs> yes. these stars and different colours on yep. it or these stripes or whatever it is or your spinning wheel if you're in India is important mm-hmm. and that we are all one because of this thing yep we're all just standing on different bits of dirt yeah surrounded by ocean yep. every one of us on this planet yep yet our political systems are still very much exactly as they were colonial era yeah you know 1700s yep. maybe earlier is what we're the model we're based on what do you see as the future of particularly in this country or you know let's go with modern worlds what do you see as the future of democracy and even voting that's so interesting so this is the second time we've been asked this question in three days and it hadn't come up a lot but it's come up a bit recently and the group who asked it with this conference in south carolina i mean you know so south carolina southern states i thought i should tread carefully here in answering this question with them bear in mind i've been to south carolina Mm. beautiful place stunning loved it went for a run Confederate flags, yeah. like essentially uh-huh. the Nazi flag, uh-huh. essentially yep. hanging from people's front fucking porch. It's amazing. Yep. Mate, what? what? Yeah. It, not okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Stunning. And the and people are great. Lovely people. Built on slavery. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Full on. Yep. And it's still around mm-hmm. 150 mm-hmm. years later, 170 yep. years later, it's yep. still around. Yep. People are lovely. Yep. So, yeah, but there's this undercurrent. Lovely if. <laughs> yeah, fit. Boom. There it is. Lovely <laughs> as long as. Yeah. You and right. I are white men, yep. so we're we okay. Did okay. Yep. I was with an Indian bloke at the time. Different yeah, story, wow. man. Different story. Anyway, so you're in South Carolina. So, yeah, you're and I at thought, this I better tread carefully. This is the now energy conference? The question. Yeah, so I thought I better tread carefully. And um, But I think the thing is, regardless of where you're at on the spectrum, what we've got now isn't working. I mean, if it's, there's just no doubt. I mean, you look at the – and there's so many political systems around the world. There's either paralysis, like just stuff's not moving. Things – legislation isn't going through because there's such bipartisan, toxic, you know, us versus them ideologically – all that stuff going on. What the, what you mean is like because the person in the blue tie said it, I am a red tie, therefore will not agree with it. Yep. Even though it's probably a great idea for both of us and our kids, yep. I'm going to say no just because the blue tie man said Actually, it. Actually, on that note, I saw this thing a few weeks ago. There was a – now this is – I'm going to get the details wrong. But the principle of it was they showed they, – they, they quoted someone and said it was Trump. And there was a, an audience who were oh, all right. Republican. Did you see this? No, no, no and but pe- I, I know. I can understand People it and they oh, – because just – and then afterwards they revealed it had been something Obama said. 
And this very this very statement they'd applauded a few minutes earlier, they all they started to boo and disengage, and it's like it was so ideologically minded. The content of what was shared was irrelevant. It was the source that mattered. So if Trump said it, we love it. If, if Obama said it, it's you know just lunacy. So I mean that's how polarized it is. So I think if you look at the whole voting thing. I think it's going to have to change. And there's no reason we couldn't go to a, a place where direct democracy became a reality. Because why do we have representative democracy? It's, some of it's about efficiency. But there was, a, there was an era where, you know, you had, for instance, a community that had to be represented and the guy would go on horseback from his community to the state capital to vote on a piece of legislation. And then he'd have to go back and explain what was happening and get on his horse again. We're in an era now, if you want to get you know, stuff voted on, it can happen electronically immediately. Now, the challenge with that is it doesn't allow for, in many cases, divergent or minority views because and everything becomes a popularity contest. So you'd need to have checks and balances around that because humans are inherently sort of selfish or self-centered. So there's that, there's that nervousness about do we need leaders who make choices, the hard choices that may not be popular but are necessary for long-term sustainability and the rest of it. Yes but the, is the answer. Correct. But, <laughs> but is there a place then for still giving the populace a chance to vote, even if we know that what they'll vote on will often be self-centered or, you know, unenlightened, but at least then we're getting a representative view, a truly representative view. So we may well get to that space pretty soon. Um, I'll be I'll be curious to see how politics goes. I mean, here we are. How many poli- how many prime ministers in six or seven years? We've had a uh, seven prime ministers in eleven years. <laughs> I actually had this thing on Facebook, one of these memes that, you know, back in the day, the first question I'd asked when you came out of a coma was, who's the prime minister to test how cognizant you were? Now that's a useless question. Yeah, right. <laughs> so when we, so we speak about that, we speak about that kind of, what about, what about global politics? I mean, we are now in a situation where we have economic, uh, a, a global economic relationship yeah. where all country, we all depend on China, mm. uh, but we have if any, I mean, the United Nations may be in the World Economic Forum, maybe, but we have a pretty shit way of having countries deal with each other to deal with actual proper global problems, which we cannot escape. We cannot escape the global ramifications of our economic system of climate change. The fuel we talked about burning, the global global economy, it is coming for every single one of us. What do you see as a way that might emerge as a way of countries dealing with each other? Well, I think probably what we'll see is it won't be countries dealing with each other. I think what we're seeing already is that companies are becoming far more powerful than governments. And we're probably moving to an era where it'll actually be those who are running corporations that will have the power to really affect change. And the governments will look after some of the application of things legislatively at a local level, but actually driving change won't happen from governments. So, for example, the other day when the Trump administration said, ah, look, temperature is going to be seven degrees higher mm. than it is now in 2100. Fuck it. Fuel emissions. We don't care. Make all the cars you want. Yep. Are you saying then that Ford, GM, Volvo will go, actually, no, we're going to make this. We're all going to agree as an industry to make this. In fact, we're going to go no internal combustion by this year. Mm-hmm. We don't give a shit what you say. This is what's going to happen. Well, so that's already happening. Um, so, so a lot of the big car makers, that's their their stated claim. So, for instance, electric vehicles. I'm pretty sure that Volvo's plan is to have every car by next year 
from the shipping from mid next year onwards being an electric engine. So you've got vehicle manufacturers out there saying, well, we're not going not gonna to wait for governments to catch up. We're just going to go and do it because either a bit like the IKEA example, we know it's economically sensible and environmentally necessary. So we'll do it. Um, but you look at the fact that we've got fortunately some really enlightened people in positions of power. I mean, look at what Bill Gates has done in the last few decades and he's done far more good than the UN has done with the Microsoft with the Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation correct yeah right. so one of the one of the organizations I've done a stack of work volunteer wise with is Rotary so Rotary International 1.2 million members like amazing organization pretty much spearheaded the eradication of polio I mean they pretty much made it happen and so they've teamed up with the the Gates Foundation in the last sort of 10 to 15 years and the stuff they're doing is stuff that governments could not have done would not have done um, so I think we'll see more and more of that. And I think Elon Musk, for all of his foibles, and he's, he's an interesting character. Mm. I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch how that all plays out in the next couple of months. But I think you've got people like that who there is really an idealistic bent. It's, I mean, they're going to make money. They want to make money. They're, they're opportunistic. But they seem to be idealistic in equal measure. So I'd love to think that there's going to be enough people in those positions who will affect change because it's environmentally sensible but also economically so? Well, I, do, I think about that and, I, and I've been fortunate in my life to meet a couple of these guys. I've, yep. I've met proper billionaires yeah, yep. and I've spent time with proper billionaires. The one particular billionaire I'm thinking about, he lives about three metres above the high tide mark in the Hamptons. He's got a $20 million estate or $50 million yeah, wow. estate that he spent five years restoring. Yep. You cannot tell me that he, this is a place where he's raised his children mm. and he, he's got grandchildren coming. You can't tell me that he doesn't want to go, you know what, fuck, I might, I might like to stay here. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't like the North Atlantic to swallow this. Yep. What influence can I hold mm. so that ocean 100 metres from here yep. doesn't swallow my apartment, my yep. house? Yep. And someone like him, great example of people whose focus shifts from just what am I building to what am I leaving? And there's enough of them who are at that place. I mean, even Richard Branson's doing some great stuff for the very same reason. It's that idea of- He I've likes something. Nick Rowland. He doesn't want That's to exactly lose it. it. Why would you jeopardize that? So I think there's enough of them who are doing clever stuff and governments, for any number of reasons, will have to catch up. That, that does fascinate me though. It does lead us to, you know, we then- you know, they, the, the the Google credo was just do no do evil. No evil yeah. yeah. It's not hard to imagine a company to, to go, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do a bit of evil. Yep. And we, as we've seen with the Cambridge Analytica thing, which was as much as Zuckerberg tried with that manifesto mm. that he wrote about trying to develop communities and da, 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 da the amount of ability for manipulation of, of society yep. is, is extraordinary yeah. and, and uh, it, I'm not the first person to say it, but the fact that we now carry around in our hands and are attract, attached to many hours of every day, a device that we are allowing to manipulate us yeah. yep. could be used in a very, very tricky, it could, it could be used to influence us in very, very good ways. Mm -hmm. Like if you Google, I don't know, let's say I want a Google and Uber or a Google and, and then an, and an EV solution was your first response. You, you know, you might click That's that, it. Yep. you know, and you're, you're being manipulated yep. to choose an environmentally responsible thing. And that yep. might be a mandate from above. Yet that could also be uh, Google property prices in Sydney. Yep. And then the first article that comes up is Chinese nationals buying your housing prices going up because of the Chinese, right? It might not be true. Yep. But it, it sways. It sways, sways opinion. your opinion. Yep. You know, so we're lucky at the moment that for the most part, Google and Facebook are trying to stay mm. on the not evil people. Yep. But, you know, 
it's not my statement, Yuval Noah Harari, it's just imagine if Stalin had access to this stuff, what would society look like? Yeah. So yep. that's also kind of scary, Michael. Well, that's it. I mean, benevolent dictators are good and until they're not benevolent anymore. <laughs> and, and in many cases, we've got the people running these companies are essentially like a benevolent dictator. Mm. They control life for a whole lot of us. Um, and as you say, for now, they're good. The encouraging thing is the state of play, it seems now, is that the moment they're not good and the word gets out and word gets out now in ways that it couldn't have 15 years ago, we vote with our feet pretty quickly. And I think that they know that there's sort of, you know, the, I think the best disinfectant's a bit of light. And so I think the more people hear about things that are a little bit off, and I think the beautiful thing about what's happened at Facebook is they've really lifted their game because for them, trust is the most important thing. And so the moment there was a sense that they'd lost trust, they worked hard to restore it. And that wasn't because they were regulated and told they had to, regardless of what Europe did. The, all the steps they've taken have been essentially market-driven decisions, not even, not even ethical decisions, just like if we don't do this, people could disappear as quickly as they're attracted to the platform. I guess the, the interesting thing about what you're saying about these benevolent dictators like these CEOs mm. or the, the heads of these companies, these men and women that run these extraordinary things, is that yes, they may have their headquarters in a particular country, yep. in a particular city, but it's very hard to be a super nationalistic, let's say for example, the Pepsi CEO, she's from India, it's very hard, she lives in the States, but it's very hard for her to be, you know, 100% loyal to the outcomes of India yep. when she's running a global com company. Yep. And yes, I can only look at like India first or America first, mm. like Ford can be living under Trump who's America first, but Ford's like fucking, our biggest market's China. Yep. Bigger than here. Yep. So we have to, I don't, yes, great. Yep. We might be centered in Dearborn, Michigan, but yep. we need to look after somewhere yeah. Yeah. where there's a, like a 20 million person city that I haven't heard of yep. that's bigger than our whole country. Yep. You know, so I, that is one thing that might be going for us. I think that it's mm. hard to have nationalistic fervor overtake economics yep. of a global company. Yep. I'm surprised at what's happening with tariffs and the rest with Trump. I just, and it's just, it seems so impractical. Like it goes against everything we've seen for the last few decades. And we are in a globalized economy. There's no way around that. So building these fences, artificial fences, it, it, it never works for long. So it'll work for now. It'll win him some political points, but it just seems like it's, it's an unsustainable approach. This whole very make America great again, this very nationalistic approach. You know, probably if, it, if anything, it'll sort of reset the dialogue, but then the next president that comes in will start moving back toward where we were because it's the only sustainable model. Let's, we'll be talking a little about countries and, and big solutions. So mm. Let's talk, I mean, we talked a little about kids. Let's talk about for people who might be in a job that's vulnerable. Yep. What would you say, let's go next seven years. Yep. If people are a bit worried, what would you say the best thing to focus on would be? So it would depend on the industry you're in. So I would say, for instance, again, going back to the example of being a doctor, find an area of, of medicine that is going to require the human stuff most. Um, if you are in the legal profession, again, dial up the skills you've got. Maybe you need to go and do a course in negotiation or even go and do something way outside your industry. Go and learn to be a, a counsellor or a therapist. Develop some of those soft empathy coaching skills. Um, same for accountants. So for accountants, the best metaphor I've heard is that in the past, the accountant was the, you know, the scorekeeper at the end of the match. End of the financial year, sit down, sort everything out. Where, where did you stand? Now that the accountant's got to be the coach from the sidelines throughout the match. I mean, they're essentially a coach and advisor. So 
the accountants that are going to do well in the years ahead will develop those skills in being a good coach or an advisor, which are not the skills you may have learned when you studied to be an accountant. So it would depend on where you're at, but the question would be, how do you dial up those human skills? And it may well mean you don't go back to do more study within the area you've worked in. You may want to go and do a creative writing course. You know, learn how to write poetry or learn creative stuff that may give you a different perspective than the hard-nosed skills that you learned when you were at university, for instance, or at TAFE. So it, it will probably mean the human stuff, how do you dial that up? And it's probably going to mean doing stuff you haven't done previously. So that can be really confronting yep. because we, we spoke before about life has been until today a period of intense learning, mm. then a period of the rest of your life doing the same thing, yep. all right? that period of intense learning and doing a job might happen if you're 25, if you're 30. Yep. You may need to do that four times by Correct. the time yeah. you stop working. Yep. Is it a, an idea as well to focus on developing skills of resilience and developing yeah. skills of flexibility? Yes, yeah. resilience, flexibility, even skills of like just that entrepreneurial thing, you know, being able to work for yourself and be self-managed and not have to be part of, you know, the, the support mechanism of a corporation. You know, There's an interesting quote I read in a report recently from an Apple store manager and he said, you know, if in the years ahead, if you need to be managed, you won't be employable. You know, so even if you have a job, like if you need someone to be there to coach you and set goals, that's going to be a, a real drawback because that those sort of skills, actually being an entrepreneur, even within an organization as an employee, is going to be necessary. So that then leads me to fear for, and I know I'm lucky in that I'm so curious and I'm lucky in that I had the education that I had. There are many people that aren't as curious as I and there are mm -hmm. many people that did not have the benefit of being born white, male, straight, middle mm. class as I. And there are many people who a job that is, you know, some of us might consider rudimentary. Mm. That's the top end of their skill set. Yep. They're wonderful people. Yeah. That's as, that's as complicated as things can be. Yep. What to do with this entire class of society that's now not needed by the economy? What to do with all these people yeah. who now literally can't do anything because nobody needs them? Yes. That's being useless as not a nice feeling. It's pretty. It's that's pretty confronting. And I'd love to say there was a simple solution like go and do a course in being creative or get more curious or whatever. But if you're if you're operating at the uh -huh. very edges of your ability, yep. yep, you can't. Yep. And the thing is, there will be there's no there's no way around it. There'll be people displaced. And I mean, that's been going on for years. But I mean, what we saw happen over the course of decades when the Industrial Revolution gathered pace, we'll see happen in the space of, you know, a decade in the next next few years. So it's going to be a pretty, it's going to be messy. Mm. And there's some discussions about, you know, do we have universal base, basic income and give people an amount of money so that there's not widespread poverty? And there's probably some sense in that. And yeah, that'll probably happen. We just saw one of the most robust tests of this wound back in Canada about six weeks ago, only a year and a half into a three-year trial. So that was a shame because that was probably the, a really good example of what it could look like. But even then, so let, let's say we can pay people money. They may not starve, but it's the stuff that comes with work that is not, not economic. I mean, mm. it's, it's dignity and a sense of contribution and all the rest of it. And that's the thing that worries me more. I'd love to say there's a simple solution. I don't know there is. And I, I was thinking about this a lot. I've just been on, Bal in, on holidays in Bali mm -hmm. for a week with my wife and thinking about this sort of thing a lot, thinking yep. a lot about an economy like Indonesia or, say, for example, Bangladesh or India where there's millions of people yep. who have jobs that 
this shirt was probably made by, you know, I bought this in Bali. This shirt was probably made by someone who doesn't get paid much. Yeah. But, you know, their entire self-identity, their dignity, their sense of self and worth does not come from their job. Mm. It comes from the extraordinary community and the structure of their life that has been yep. based around their religious practice, their Hinduism, yep. and that there is uh, there's a very strict calendar uh, around the planting of rice. And then there's you know a festival every full moon. There's a festival every new moon. So every yep. two weeks, at least they're gathering together with the community. They have yep. a temple in their house. Their life is is revolves around this. The, the work is just another thing. Yeah. But in our Western democracy, you know, Western society, certainly in Australia, we are who we, our job is. Yep. And if that vanishes, yeah. we're fucked. Yep. So is one of the, the things as well to prep ourselves for what's coming is, as you've written in your book, start creating the groups, start creating the ritual, start creating the, the sense of purpose. I meet this person every, I, I have a poker game I go to every Wednesday night, I have yep. done for 14 years. Yep. Is it starting to do things like that every week? So then, uh, so we increase our definition of ourselves yeah. beyond our job yep. so that as the job and career will change many times in the next 40 years, that stuff can stay consistent. Is, is, that, a, yeah. is that a possibility? I mean, and even even if none of this change was happening, that'd be really good advice. <laughs> you know, like it really would because the idea of separating your identity from your profession is just smart. Because, I mean, in any of us, let's say, for instance, let's just say, look at your role. For, let's say, for instance, you had a horrific accident and you were disfigured and suddenly- Touching some wood right you know, Touching some wood. Suddenly you couldn't do what you do. Mm. I mean, in that moment- if what you've built your identity on was taken away, what would still be left? And if the answer to that is, oh, gosh, I don't know, that's shaky ground. So for any of us, even if none of this AI stuff was coming, to, to as much as you can, it's hard to know until actually that were taken out. I mean, then you'd actually know, well, what am I standing on? Yeah. But even to have the thought experiment of, okay, well, if I couldn't do what I do, would I still feel valuable? Would I still have a contribution? All that. I mean, trying to separate your identity from your work is... I mean, it'd just be smart, sensible, common sense. But, you know, it's something we don't give it a lot of thought to because we're also focused on this aspirational, how do I get to the next rung in the ladder? And if I get this or I make partner or whatever it is, I'm, I'm, I'm somehow worth more or better and often in comparison to others. And the problem with that is if you win, you become conceited. If you fail, you become ashamed. And either way, that's not, that's not sustainable or helpful. And so that whole competition thing that's so deeply ingrained in our psyche and i think unfortunately social media man it amplifies it because every day and i heard someone put it well recently you know we, we it's like we've got a generation of people who are comparing their behind the scenes footage with everyone else's highlight reel you know and wondering why they feel like they're not making the grade and it's like it's it's so it just amplifies that so how do you try and detach your identity from your work and your looks and your wealth and your all that stuff just sensible to do, really. I need you to hold that thought because I'm about to explode with pee. Uh <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Better? <laughs> You've got film on your shelf. I'm going to take your photo with that camera right there. That's awesome. That's a 1961 Polaroid that I had converted. Um, and isn't that interesting in a lot of what we're talking about that I think we're actually seeing in some cases the, the retro. Yeah. Like, and it's not just retro technology, but when you look at the rise of farmer's markets, like people yeah. who got I'm fed up now with coals and woolies. And yeah, but that's not – I love it, but it's not scalable. It's not scalable. Yeah. I was talking, uh, and speaking of film, Kodak just bought Ektachrome back, which is an extraordinary, really? difficult, difficult process, which is my favorite. I, it's not my favorite. It's one of the things they used to have, their, their slogan was make it a Kodak moment. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Speaking of comparing highlight reels to, mm. to other reels. But the Kodak moment was we invented digital imagery and then sold the patent and then this ex unbelievable corporation vanished. Yep. But now that, yeah, they're bringing back um, thing. Anyway, so I wanted to ask you to, to round things out. As a futurist, you have skin in the game and mm. that you have a two and a half year old child. Yeah, yep. What world do you see your kid turning 18 into? <laughs> That's an interesting question. And I think about that often. In fact, it great, gives me great material for presentations and books because it really brings into sharp focus all the stuff that I talk about with corporates and leaders and the rest of it and policymakers because it's like, okay, this, this is very personal. And even probably one of the most significant moments in the last few years was when he was born, we took him over to meet my grandmother. So his great-grandmother, she's 95. Like, can you think the difference those two humans will know is just crazy. Like it really, it really reminds you of just the gravity of change and how much has happened. So I think for him, I think the, the thing we're yeah, going to see- She couldn't vote- when Correct. she was born. Yeah. Let's just get our heads around well, that. She was telling me her and her family were on holidays in Jeroa when she was a little girl. Plane comes in to land on the beach. Out hops Charles Kingsford Smith. Like, Match. I mean, it's just like, what the? So you think about the world she's known. Like, just yeah. so different. I mean, she's got an iPad on Facebook. She's pretty cool. But, yeah, the difference there. So that's they're the moments because I look at him and I think the world he's going to grow up in, he's, he's going to probably do fine because of the environment he's been raised in where hopefully we're, we're off our phones as much as we can. We're engaging, we're building those resilient skills, teaching to be curious and think and, and have empathy because we're very intentional about that. I'd like to think we'd do that even if the world wasn't about to change and AI wasn't going to do all the stuff it'll do. But I, I'm concerned for the fact that he'll probably be in an era where that won't be as common. A lot of his peer group and community or society at large may not have that. And I think that's going to be a, a real concern. The issues of, I mean, we're talking about mental health now. I don't, we ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, in terms of what, what we're seeing coming for a generation who've been raised in an era where if parents are absent because of technology or not able to connect or school systems aren't building resilience and suddenly then the goalposts move significantly, it's going to be messy. I, so I, I look at him and I think, okay, I'd love to think we're raising a leader. I'd love to think that we're going to equip him to be able to be useful in an age where things are going to be really messy um, because I think we're going to need it. You, will, your, will your son ever need a driving license? I don't, I don't think so. In fact, his favorite thing to do is um, jump on my lap and when we get home and pretend to drive in the driveway. And I looked at it recently. I thought well, he'll probably never get to do it. Um, so that's sort of interesting and a bit sad because that's a rite of passage and all the rest of it. 
But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating sort of era. And even talking to parents who are looking at their kids thinking, what sort of things can we be encouraging our kids to do? One of the things, and it returns to the theme we sort of started talking about in terms of what shaped a lot of my thinking and approach, was I'd say, you know, get your kids into a job where they learn to sell. Because I reckon selling is the most important skill because it's not what you're selling. It's the fact that you learn, you know, how to deal with rejection, how to persuade, how to motivate people, how to understand need and empathize and intuit. I mean, it's it's actually those skills. And you look at like Daniel Pink's book, you know, To Sell is Human. And he, his, his thesis is that everyone sells every day. We just don't realize. We just don't call it that. And I think if you want to really gear up someone for the future, learning to sell something is probably one of the most important skills you could have. And it's not very sexy because parents want to know what course at uni their kids should do. And I'm like, well, that could be of some use, but I reckon if you want to really get them set up, that's the sort of stuff that would be useful. But how long, Michael, how long until AI figures out exactly, <laughs> you know, I'm a 44-year-old man, how long until AI figures out exactly what things to prime me with, mm -hmm. what images and sounds to play me, and then hit me with the conversion moment and then give me the thing to click on Yep. Uh, until like it, it can read exactly my facial expressions. It can go, yeah, he's ready. He wants to buy this camera. Yep. There it is. You yep. can have it right now. In fact, we'll do it for this much percentage less because it's figured out exactly the percentage yeah. point based on my previous purchases that I will tip at. How long until that happens? And what do we then do with not ourselves? Long. Yeah. Yeah, that's not long. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> looking at retail space, yeah, that's not far away at all. Yeah. Um, so in the meantime, if you can learn to sell something while you still can, <laughs> that'd be smart. But then does it come back to how can we create a core of human interaction yep. between people we love and care about because having people around us that we love and care about is something that yet a machine or a device can't get in between. And I reckon they'll never be able to do. And that's a big call, but I don't think they ever will. So yeah, look at, for instance, the aged care space. And in Japan, again, because the aging population, they're, they're you know, hell-bent on creating care robots and robots that will nurse you in hospital. And I was doing some work at a, at a um, big medical conference recently. And the moment that stood out to me most was all the speakers there talking about robotics and all the cool technology in the, in the healthcare space. But the most beautiful moment was there was a, a team from Concord Hospital who in the Burns unit who were just talking about someone they'd been treating for the last few months and giving his patient experience and all the rest of it. He was on stage being interviewed too. And the MC asked one of the nurses about you know, how she'd found the experience of treating this guy who came up with really bad burns and now is walking out and functioning all the rest. And she started to tear up. This nurse got, you know, quite she was really moved and and I thought, you know, in that moment, that was that was very powerful because what that shows is the stuff that, again, we as humans do because you can automate caregiving. You, know, you can create a robot that bathes people and looks after wounds, but you can't get a robot to care. And I think that, that stuff that we do as humans, again, it's dieting up all the human stuff, that's the safest place to be because I don't think that's going to disappear anytime soon. And so in a retail environment, the retailers that will survive are those where you walk into a store and you have an experience because someone actually connects with you and cares. And I mean, there's great technology now where if you walk into a store, it identifies you by your phone, you know, geofencing technology alerts the person behind the register, your age, your name, what you've bought previously. And the, the interesting challenge is I often say to retailers, there's a fine line between customizing the experience and just being downright creepy. And some of it's creepy. Like, you know, like I don't want a store to know that much about me when I walk in. But in that, in that moment, as all of that becomes automated, that ability to just connect and build relationships and create an experience. That's what that'll be. There'll be a premium for that. It's not scalable, 
but it's it's highly valuable. Yeah, I think about if what you're talking about if in this Amazon pattern comes through, if we mm. live in a world where in the middle of a podcast, if that microphone there breaks and I can get on my phone, hit a <laughs> button and within two minutes one drops out of the sky, yep. that instant response, instant thing, like the, the, the joy of having a new thing in my hand, I mean, already doesn't last long. Yep. I'll take it for granted yep. that things literally fall out of the sky. Yeah, yep. Where does joy then come from? Where next, does the human experience come from? So next time you want to replace this with the next model and you want to go into a store and, and not even a store, a suite and listen to a couple of different microphones and have an expert walk through, okay, what, what if you're looking for this purpose or that purpose yeah. and getting the chance to viscerally, tangibly experience a product, that's yeah. when you'd use a store. When right. you're just replacing, the transactional stuff will disappear, there's no doubt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's when you want to experience something that you can't do just online transactionally. I think I'm, I'm so grateful you came today because I feel better about environmental cataclysm. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Minor win. Uh, it is in my world. It's a major win, mate. Wait till you read that book. Mm. Um, I also feel better about that the future you're speaking of will require us as humans to um, have to become more human Correct. with each other. Yep if we want to remain relevant at all yep. because that is all we'll have. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yep. That's exciting. My wife jokes with me all the time because I, I grew up in a way that I, I am one of these people that has had to learn how to be empathetic in my 20s, maybe later. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was quite robotic for a long time. And she says, she goes, you're not human very well. And I often have to, she has to correct me a lot. <laughs> Thanks, and love. Go, no, 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 I'm really grateful for mm. it. She goes, because I'm also pretty deaf. I'm a cyborg. I have these things in my ears so I can hear people. She goes, I know you can't hear them, but you need to keep looking at them until they walk away. Ah, oh, okay. Wow. So she, yep. actually, she actually has to, I know I can be, a, people, I, I can be weird. <laughs> and so I'm grateful that I learn, I'm learning all this stuff. Even though I'm 44, I'm learning this stuff. Yep. But yeah, this is exciting. Cool, man. I know you brought notes, but we didn't probably get too much get too much of your it's good. notes. Sorry about that. That's fine. I'm glad we didn't. This is far more interesting. Are you, are yeah. you okay? Absolutely. Cool, man. That's great. All right. Thanks for coming around. Thanks My for letting pleasure. me have a pee break. <laughs> You're welcome. It's a good, you know it's a good podcast when I don't want to <laughs> um, get to the point. I normally, I'm like, I can't finish yet. <laughs> Sometimes a, a podcast, is, I speak with Will Anderson about it. He's, he has a self-timer when he's on stage. He has about a four-beer gig. Yeah, right. All right. <laughs> yep. Four's about he goes he goes to the toilet just before he walks on. Yep. Four's about yeah. I can, I yep. have to, now I have to pee. Yep. Now I'll get off stage. End of the set. Yeah. Yep. yeah end of the set. Four beer gigs. So <laughs> I know my, my podcast usually lasts as long as I can hold my weed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I had to finish this one. It was too good. Cool man. Thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. That's awesome. All right, I'm going to take your photo with that camera now. Cool. Let's do it. That was Michael McQueen. You can find him online, Michael underscore McQueen on Twitter or michaelmcqueen.net. His latest book, How to Prepare for What's Next, is available there as well. Massive thank you to everybody that reached out through the week. Big love to the Facebook group, osha.is slash fbgroup, if you want to find us there. Um, i got to thank my producer of life, Rachel Barrett. She's amazing. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without her. She helped make this show today, as did my audio producer, Andy Ma. And musical direction was of always, of course, from Mike Mills, also known 
as Toe Hider. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for the support. If you need me through the week, uh, Instagram's probably best, uh, or you can find me, uh, send us your email at gmail.com. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.